Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. John, in the last episode, we finished our series on grace and free will. Yes, we got to explore some interesting and even profound theological and historical material there. Uh, Of course, to be clear, we really only scratched the surface. (laughs) Yeah, there's always far more to say. True enough. But we did at least outline tension that has existed in the church for centuries. It's always a challenge to acknowledge simultaneously our complete dependence on God's grace and the genuinely free choices that we make. We're starting our next series in this episode. Before we do that, though, we did want to pause briefly. We want to thank you, our audience, for listening, for your support of the podcast, and for the encouragement that you send our way. Yes, as you know, we release an episode every other week, and we rely entirely on your support to keep it going. We also rely on word of mouth for our advertising. Uh, That's right. All the donations we receive go to maintaining the podcast. And the only marketing we have is you, our listeners. So please (laughs) continue to share it with others. Yes, yes. We also send out an email announcement when a new episode is published. So if you want to be on that list or if you'd like to give to the podcast, just go to our homepage at orthodox.faith. That's... Oh boy, here it comes. (laughs) O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Not as good as you do it in the outro, Ron, but passable? Keep your day job, John. (laughs) (laughs) The series we begin in this episode focuses on the story of Samuel in the Old Testament. Yes, we haven't worked directly in the books of Samuel yet on the podcast, but it's such a key part of Israel's story. It narrates the transition from the period of the judges to the time of the early monarchy. That takes us from Samuel to Saul and to very late in the reign of David. That's a significant chunk of history, nearly a century, not to mention a major turning point in the stories of the kings of Israel and eventually also the kings of Judah. In the Hebrew tradition, the books we now know as First and Second Samuel were originally one book just called Samuel. Here's this body of text that includes the rise and fall of David, surely one of the most famous, iconic, and influential figures in the biblical story as a whole. And yet, it's not called the Book of David. Mm. It's not even called the Book of Saul after Israel's first king. No, instead it's called Samuel. It should become clear why that's the case as we get into it. Now, Ron, we're not going to tackle the whole of the books of Samuel in this series, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Between the two parts of Samuel, that would be 55 chapters. However, if we focus on just 1 Samuel, and in particular the earlier parts of that book, we get the story of Samuel himself. And we want to look closely at the role he plays in Israel's history. Of course, you can't tell Samuel's story without also talking about Saul and David too, but our focus is going to be on Samuel himself. Right, and we're going to do that in... Four episodes. Four episodes, no more. (laughs) All right. Well, this part of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament is called the former prophets. That's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, at least as we find those books named in most of our recent English translations. Some of us may have learned in Sunday school to include all those in other so-called historical books, but what follows is likely going to make more sense if you keep in mind these are the former or earlier prophets. In any case, in this episode, we begin with the first chapter of 1 Samuel. We'll make it about halfway into chapter 2. Right from the start, though, I gather we get something different in the way Samuel is introduced. It's not the way characters are usually introduced in the former prophets, is it? That's right. We actually get what's called a birth narrative for Samuel. That is very significant, and we're going to explore that part of the story here. Let's go see what the biblical story has to say here. 
We first meet the character of Samuel in the book most of us know as 1 Samuel, and it's worth locating that book in the larger biblical story. Remember that after the Exodus, after Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Only after that did they enter the promised land. And by that time, Joshua was the one leading Israel. Right. Joshua was mainly a military figure who was in charge of settling the people in the land according to the tribal allotments given by Yahweh. That's the name of Israel's God. We find that part of the story in the book of Joshua. We have a whole podcast series on that book, Ron, where we dive a little bit deeper into it. Yes, we do. And John, I seem to recall specific parts of Joshua were your main focus in grad school. Yes. In any case, Israel succeeded in taking over much of the land, but the conquest was not a total success. They were not able to claim all of the land, and that would cause them problems later on. After Joshua was out of the picture, Israel entered the period of the judges. We read about that, surprise, surprise, in the book of Judges. During the time of the judges, Israel did not have a single consistent national leader. It was still functioning tribally. In other words, the nation, if we can call it that, was really a loosely organized confederation of tribes governed as a theocracy. Right. The individual tribes of Israel had their internal leadership, but there was not a single ruler over all of them. There were priests who oversaw the common worship life shared by the tribes, but the priests didn't exercise a broad governmental rule. Instead, during the period of the judges, that broader intertribal leadership was ad hoc. That is, when times of crisis arose, God raised up a charismatic leader called a judge to lead the tribes through the crisis. Now, those times of trouble typically involved some kind of oppression by neighboring peoples, didn't it? Uh, times when Israel needed deliverance. Exactly. The judges would rally the nation, such as it was, to the cause and secure that deliverance from an oppressing enemy, and then a period of peace would follow. But those judges were not meant to be installed permanently as kings or similar kinds of lasting rulers. We could say a lot more about the book of Judges. That's where we get the colorful stories of leaders like Deborah and Gideon and Samson. However, the trajectory of Israel's story drops into a downward spiral and takes some tragic turns before the book of Judges closes. We'll have to leave all that for a future series. <laughs> right. But to summarize, Moses' leadership gives way to Joshua's and then to the ad hoc interim military leadership of the judges as it was needed to fend off common enemies. And as the book of Judges progresses, it becomes clear that all is not well in Israel. One of the refrains that starts to crop up is the familiar statement, in those days Israel had no king. Mm. It shows up four separate times in the last chapters of Judges. And in two of those instances, that's followed by the note, everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, literally, each one did what was right in his own eyes. At those points, the narrator is clearly suggesting that a lack of strong central leadership has left the people too much to their own devices. The result is an increasingly chaotic and decaying nation. What it was supposed to be instead was the covenant people flourishing faithfully under Yahweh in the promised land as they receive the covenant blessings. This is a good time, I think, Ron, to pause and review the reason why Israel had no king. Mm -hmm. From its beginning, Israel was supposed to understand that its king was Yahweh. Okay. God is king. There was nothing inherently negative, really, about kingship itself, although God had warned Israel not to desire the kingship that other nations had. The right time and the right king of God's choosing would come. 
But even so, that king was to be different. Israel was a theocracy. It was ruled by God, Israel's true king, and ruled according to the law, that is, governed by the covenant. We'll talk more about kingship in this series as we go. All right, well, Samuel himself shows up in the story late in the period of the judges. Based on some of his exploit, he himself is presented as a judge. In fact, he's the last in the line of judges, and under his leadership, Israel drove out their enemies, the Philistines. However, Samuel wasn't only a judge. He's also presented as a prophet, and as we'll see, he's a significant transitional figure between judge and king, but that transition was a bumpy one for Israel. Yes. Before we get there, we want to locate where the story of Samuel opens geographically. We've talked about where it was in time. Now let's talk about its place. Remember that the center of Israel's worship at that time was the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. It housed the Ark of the Covenant and was the place where sacrifice to God was to be made. Yeah, the tabernacle was the portable tent shrine. It had been the earthly dwelling of Yahweh, Israel's God, since the early days after the exodus from Egypt, right? It was the forerunner to the permanent temple that Solomon would build later. The tabernacle had traveled with the people wherever they went, and it was tended and maintained by the priests. Right. When the people were established in the land, the tabernacle was located in the heart of the land at a place called Shiloh. Okay. Shiloh was a town in the heart of the promised land, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Jerusalem, on the road to Shechem. It had belonged to the Canaanites at one point, but under Joshua, it was where the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant were set up. So it was the worship center for the tribes and a central gathering place of sorts. It was where every household made an annual pilgrimage, probably for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. So this is what the first chapter of 1 Samuel is talking about when it presents a family going to Shiloh to worship on sacrifice, is it not? Yes, and as we'll see in the next episode, the Philistines destroyed Shiloh. Okay. It would be partially resettled later, but it would never regain the significance that it had, other than as a cautionary tale. I visited Shiloh, mm. but it's definitely not on most Holy Land visitors' itineraries. The site is very eroded, and there's there's not a lot of surviving architecture. So this was really Shiloh's heyday. It was where the tabernacle stood, and it was the center of the priesthood in Israel. We learn earlier in the biblical story that priests belonged to a specific tribe in Israel, the tribe of Levi, so their office was hereditary. The priests were responsible for administering the tabernacle, and they oversaw the sacrifices, literally the slaughter and ritual cooking of the animals. The priests then made their living by taking a portion of the sacrifices made by the rest of the people in a manner described by the law of Moses. The portions that the priests were supposed to get were carefully prescribed under the law. That'll be an important detail a little later in the story here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Yeah, yes. Uh, in any case, as the story opens, the high priest at the time was a man named Eli. Eli was one of Aaron's grandsons, so he came with lofty family connections. If the priests were responsible for tabernacle administration, the high priest would be the one ultimately responsible, or at least he was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, when Eli dies, the vocabulary used about his leadership is judge. It says Eli judged Israel 40 years. 
So it seems like Eli was not only high priest, but also had some other functions of leadership that resembled that of the judges. All right. Well, because of the hereditary priesthood, though, Eli's sons were also priests. We learn their names in verse three of first Samuel, but we get nothing else about them there. The narrator is signaling that the two sons named Hophni and Phinehas were really running the tabernacle. And we're gonna encounter a stark contrast between them and Samuel, but more on that later. The story of Samuel itself begins remarkably. That's because it opens with the story of his mother, Hannah. Samuel has a full-blown birth narrative. Okay. The first three chapters of 1 Samuel are commonly called the Shiloh narratives because what happens there in the story takes place mostly at Israel's worship and religious center. So chapter one introduces us to the character of Samuel by first recounting the unique circumstances of his birth. We're clearly meant to understand that Samuel will be someone special, someone for whom God has a plan and who will play a special role in the salvation story. Before we meet Samuel himself, though, we meet his parents, Elkanah, or in Hebrew, Elkanah, and Hannah. I notice the narrative is careful to identify them as righteous people. Uh, by the way, First uh, Chronicles mentions that Samuel's family line comes from the Kohathite family of the tribe of Levi. If you want to look it up, that's First Chronicles 6. That means he's from a family line of Levitical priests that were originally responsible for taking care of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, if you want to look it up, check out Numbers 3. So even if this wasn't a prominent family, they were at least a very notable family. And besides all that, Elkanah is described as a faithful man who fulfilled his covenant responsibilities to God sacrificially year after year, as the text says. He was generous in distributing meat to his family, and he loved his wife, Hannah, even though she hadn't borne him any children. Yeah, in that culture, the simple statement in 1 Samuel 1-2 that Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none, says a lot. Peninnah was Elkanah's second wife. And while the text doesn't say this outright, it wouldn't be unusual at all if the reason that he took a second wife was because Hannah was, to use the biblical term, Baron. John, I'm worried that it's very hard for us to grasp the full significance of this. Mm. The modern world looks at having children as entirely optional, and it's recognized more and more as a very expensive thing to do. Mm. And the contrast between that perspective and the ancient world could not be more stark. Pick almost any time before the modern world, and a male heir was absolutely essential to continue the family line. Besides that, children in general were a crucial part of the household economically because of what they did. They contributed labor to the household economy. And to top it all off, it was the children that cared for their parents in their old age. Having children was essential. It was considered a disaster when a couple could not have children. And in a case like Elkanah's, where there were two wives, the wife without children would be perceived as worthless. And I think sadder still, she'd likely perceive herself that way. Frankly, that conclusion wasn't entirely without merit. Bearing children was a decisive factor in the role a woman got to play in society. Exactly. And not only is Hannah in a difficult position by having to sit by and watch the other wife provide for her husband what she could not, but according to the Hebrew text, Hannah also had to endure ridicule from her. 
So there's ongoing cruelty and shame and embarrassment swirling around in Hannah's life, which must have been miserable. The story says she wept and would not eat. To be fair, her husband Elkanah does not appear to have resented her or wished her to mourn the situation, though, does he? He asks her, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Right. He continues to be pictured as a man of character who's not discontent with his wife, Hannah. So what does Hannah do? According to 1 Samuel, she turns to God in prayer, specifically to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Yes. At the Lord's house in Shiloh, she takes her desperation to God. She begs for God's help and makes a vow. She knows this will take a miracle, and she pledges that if God gave a son to her, she would give that son to God's service. Making a vow was common in lament prayers as a way of seeing past the current trouble to God's faithfulness and making plans to act in response to that faithfulness. The vow Hannah makes, though, has a specific feature that helps explain what Hannah means here. She pledges that no razor will ever be used on his head, referring to her son. That's verse 11 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. The book of Numbers is back in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There in chapter 6, it describes what's called the Nazarite vow. A person, man or woman, can make a vow of dedication or separation to God for a period of time. During that time, Nazarites don't drink wine or any fermented drink, so I guess beer's off the table there. They don't cut their hair and avoid any contact with dead bodies. At the end of the Nazarite period, there's a ritual to mark the fulfillment of their vow, and at that point, they're released from the special time of dedication. However, in the case of Hannah's vow, the son that Yahweh would give her would be a permanent Nazarite, similar to Samson in Judges 13, where the angel told his mother his head is never to be touched by a razor. In other words, the boy's entire life will be dedicated and will belong exclusively to God. So in her pain, Hannah prayed desperately before the Lord. The story makes it clear that she's expressing a simple, earnest faith. Eli, who we met earlier, is the priest at Shiloh. He's the spiritual leader of Israel, but he appears to be unable to discern anything about this situation. In fact, Eli accuses Hannah of drunkenness because in her anguish, she prays silently, moving her lips, but not vocalizing her prayer out loud. Yeah, he actually says to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Well, Hannah explains that she isn't drunk. She's just grieving. Eli backs off and he even blesses her. But we're getting glimpses that there are problems with the priesthood at Shiloh and that will play out later. In Hannah's case, it doesn't take long for God to respond and Samuel is born. Now, a birth narrative involves the miraculous opening of the womb, again, to use the biblical language here. It also involves giving the child a name. And the meaning of the name always signals something significant and providential in Israel's history. That way we can look out for what that will be. Right. It signals something big or a turning point in the life of Israel. The first chapter ends with Hannah deciding to take the child to Shiloh to give him to the Lord as soon as Samuel was able to stay there permanently. So that's after he was weaned, probably two or three years old at that time. She took him to Eli made the appropriate sacrifices to God, and she tells him how God had answered her prayer. She says, quote, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life will be given over to the Lord. Old Testament scholar Bill Arnolds summed it up very eloquently. He said, having come to God with nothing, 
she now returns to Shiloh to give back that which means everything. Before Hannah and Elkanah return to their home, the narrator includes a prayer of thanksgiving that Hannah prayed. The narrative is clearly presenting some important theological themes with Samuel's birth and dedication, and Hannah's prayer captures that. In terms of Hebrew poetry, Ron, we call this prayer in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, a psalm, Mm -hmm. specifically a psalm of thanksgiving. And there's a whole series on that as well. (laughs) Yes, our series on the psalms. If we didn't know otherwise, we might assume on a first hearing that this poem comes from the book of Psalms because it sounds so much like them, and it is like them. A psalm of thanksgiving is a response to some act of God's intervention. When God acts, this is the common form of prayer that follows, and it had some specific features. We can't get into all of that, but you can find more about that in the series that we just mentioned. John, we've discussed this before, and you've mentioned there was a large bank of existing verbiage and poetry that people would draw on in the ancient Near East. In other words, there was a stock psalmody available, a large common cultural vocabulary to use in prayer and praise. When people wanted to give thanks, they already had a lot of ways to do it, and they drew on those traditions. That's exactly right. When they were thankful, they knew how to express that because their tradition had taught them and had supplied the vocabulary for it. John, I can't help but notice features of this story about Hannah and Samuel have appeared earlier in the biblical narrative. We start with a woman who's miserable because she cannot have children. A second woman bears children for the husband, and this only serves to humiliate the first woman further. Then God grants the first woman children, and the child God grants goes on to play an important role in the history of Israel. Yes, we have to take care how those parallels are drawn, but you're right. We've got the story of Abraham and Sarah, where Hagar is the first to bear Abraham a child. Mm -hmm. We've got the story of Jacob and Rachel. There, Leah, the sister, is the one who has children while Rachel suffers. Right. And in each case, the son of the formerly childless woman is a significant step forward in Israel's story. Isaac, who was Sarah's son, and Joseph, who was Rachel's. But if we look later in the biblical narrative, and forgive me here, John, I'm going to go all the way to the New Testament. (laughs) It's okay. I'm struck by the similarities between this story of Elkanah and Hannah and Samuel and the story we get in Luke about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. We've got a birth narrative. We've got a family connected to the tabernacle or temple with encounters there at that location. God grants a childless couple a son. And we've even got Nazarite vows or something not unlike that in John the Baptist's case. True. And in both cases, the son plays a significant role in God's plan for Israel. Right. And I'd even want to say that in some sense, Samuel goes before David to prepare the way long before Isaiah even utters those words. And then John the Baptist goes before Jesus to prepare the way. And Jesus is clearly being presented as the heir to David. But Ron, if we're going to talk about parallels there, we also need to talk about parallels between the prayers themselves. Absolutely. If there's a distinction between these two stories, in 1 Samuel, we have one birth narrative and one prayer. In Luke, we actually get two birth narratives, John the Baptist and Jesus, and two prayers, Mary's prayer of the Magnificat and Zachariah's prayer of the Benedictus. In all cases, these are prayers of praise and thanksgiving to God. But there are some strikingly similar features between Hannah's prayer and Mary's. They are praising God because of what God has done, but they are specifically thanking God because he raised them up from humiliation. It's in this context that they also insist God provides for the faithful or righteous. 
But maybe the most obvious parallel between the prayers lies in the reversals, if we can call them that. God has stepped in and reversed the fortune of those who were not where God wanted them. The strong become weak and the weak strong. The rich become poor and the poor rich. Now remember, these are psalms of thanksgiving. These are the flip side of the lament. The reversal of fortune is for the one previously in a mess, so to speak. Uh Hannah was in a miserable situation, and that has now been reversed, so she rejoices. And you're right. The same is true for Elizabeth and her son, John. You might also notice this reversal of fortune, as you called it, Ron. It's not just for women who were childless. Mm -hmm. It often applies to sons who are not firstborn as well. Think of Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, Jacob and Esau, and then Joseph. Oh, not to mention David himself. <laughs> exactly. Well, just in case the point is getting lost, each of these stories is an essential part of the larger story of Israel. In particular, it's a story of how God is working through the nation of Israel to provide salvation to everyone. Hannah's prayer acknowledges this. Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, acknowledges this. And so does Zechariah's Benedictus. Speaking of his son, John, Zechariah prays, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Again, Zechariah places all of this in the context of the promised salvation. Ron, it's almost like the New Testament is continuing the story the Old Testament tells. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) I have no doubt that Luke intends to place his story smack in the center of this salvation narrative centered on Israel, and he's looking straight back at stories like this one about Samuel when he does it. It's worth mentioning also that in the books of Samuel, Hannah's prayer is a bookend of sorts, along with David's thanksgiving hymn and his last words. These poems have a structural purpose in framing this story. Hannah's poem stands at the beginning of the book, celebrating what God has done and will do. David's poems conclude 2 Samuel by celebrating God's faithfulness. Together, they frame the story of how God brings the anointed one and how that is so significant for Israel. But we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Ah, yeah, anointed one. Again, we've got a whole series on that. Yes, Ultimate Hope Has a Name is what we called that series. There's a lot that's theologically significant here, and we'll talk more about that as we go. But since you've mentioned it, John, I've got to make one last observation about Hannah's prayer. Her last sentence observes that Yahweh will exalt the power of his anointed. In the Greek translation of this prayer, that word is Christ. No later Greek reader who encountered that translation of this book and then the book of Luke could possibly miss the connection. Because the setting of the opening to 1 Samuel is late in the period of the judges, we know there's trouble in Israel. Things aren't going as they should. Instead, everyone's doing whatever they want. But in the midst of that, something important is happening. God raises up a righteous family and gives that family favor, gives that family grace. Right. A big contrast is being set up between the way things are under Eli and his family's leadership and the faithful, godly, praying family of Hannah and Elkanah, through whom we already see God at work. God is on the move. That contrast and its significance is where the story heads next, and that's where we'll pick it up in the next episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. And John, listen up. This is how it's done. (laughs) (laughs) That is O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.